Hi there, everyone. Thanks for downloading the Green Majority Podcast. Uh, basically, no announcements today. I'm going to let you get right to the show. But uh, aside to say that uh, we had a very interesting question that we posed right at the end of the show. I wish we had more time to chat about it. But I, I, re- I just wanted to, to take my intro uh, moment here uh, just to say that we really would actually be, I, or at least I am very curious uh, as to people's thoughts on that. So uh, stay tuned for it. Just, to, just so you know specifically what I'm talking about is the the idea around the, the, uh, the pipeline uh, with reference to the question is how it relates to the first section. So just maybe just keep that in mind as you listen. And if you have any thoughts on that, um, we really would be interested in, in hearing what our listeners have to say about that. Uh, aside from that, of course, the usual reminder that you can uh, become a Green Majority supporter. You can be a member with us uh, and help uh, support and grow the show and pay for our uh, uh, soon-to-be-announced uh, uh, helpers uh, by becoming a member at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Green Majority. Other than that, enjoy the show. Take care. We'll uh, talk to you real soon and uh, have a good week. Welcome, you're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5, or you could be listening on one of our wonderful and very, very appreciated community radio partners. Uh, you could also be listening on the podcast. If so, welcome, future listeners, few people of the future. Yes, exactly. I don't know why I've been so fascinated by that, by this time travel aspect recently. That they're all listening from the future? That it's possible. Right. I always actually just wanted to ask them if we made it. Right. <laughs> like, like at so, any point in the future, did we make please it? Please send your email to uh, <laughs> February 2nd, 2018. Yeah, exactly. Uh, care of Stefan Hostet. Uh, and please include a picture of a turtle. Hmm. Uh, yes. So, Stefan, uh, we have an interview today produced by Deirdre, who yes. was in a, f- a former volunteer. I don't want to say former volunteer, but she's volunteer. Been, she's she's been not in the work. studio. <laughs> yes, exactly. what I say. She's not been in the studio for quite some time, but longtime listeners of the show will remember her. And uh, she's uh, producing uh, an interview for us from uh, from the past, as it were. A lot of time travel today. Right. Yes. Yeah. This is past Deirdre speaking to future you. <laughs> Being spoken at the present us. Oh man, I'm gonna have to draw a diagram to keep this all straight. <laughs> um, so that will be that's gonna be interesting. I actually don't know what's on that. I'm just gonna be completely honest. I didn't have a chance to listen to that yet. So Stefan is gonna preview that interview when we get there. Uh, sure apparently, it's with a cool mayor. That's no, all. I, no, that's all. I got. Not even a mayor. Uh, a councilor, city councilor. A cool councilor. Very cool city councilor. Well, yeah. it has alliteration if nothing else. Yeah. Uh, but I do know what we're going to start with, and I do know what we're going to finish with, Stefan. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about. We got another big insurance company. Um, is knocking off coal. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. One or two other things, possibly we'll see, we'll see how much time we have left. But right now, you chose a wonderful article to be today's sort of like beginner topic. Yes. Um, because it involves some reflection, I think, for yourself and myself and all of us, really, as quote-unquote environmentalists. But I will let you take it from there. Yeah, thank you very much. This is, a, this is an ongoing... Um, every once in a while, I sort of go back to sort of the wider range a wider lens look at, at some of these issues and and there's some speakers and some people on on in the world out there who are really I feel like there's some there is not too many but there are certainly some people out there who are actually truly speaking from a place of reality um and in reality you, you might say real talk real talk but also sort of real talk <laughs> from a sense of, of of truly staring at the climate crisis uh in its face and then and then working backwards on what that means mm-hmm. you know i feel like a lot of us um and i certainly do this on most of my mo- uh, most day-to-day basis because it makes obvious sense you know to begin where we are now and future forecast which is which is obviously helpful to figure out maybe what will happen but if you're talking about what needs to happen you sort of have to work backwards and I think there's a certain number of people out there who are who are really trying to do that work, who are who are starting at where we have to be at what time, and then be like, okay, so this is actually what we need to be talking about right now. Right. Um, so it's like when when an engineer uh, an engineer takes a philosophy class, it's full cost accounting of your uh, sort of philosophical positions and your and your ideology and your perspectives. That you know, and often I think <clears throat> a lot of the time we you know will have a position. It might even be on something minor, like me not liking a certain movie or an actor or whatever. It could be anything. And you sort of have this established position, maybe, well, you know, I heard this about them. And then it turns out that thing was was wrong, really. And you really got to follow that through. Or or if you don't like them for that reason, why do you like this other person? They did the same thing. So 
we're, what I'm trying to say, Stefan, is that humans are very complicated and we're messy and we're rarely consistent. Yes, exactly. And, <laughs> um, and, and so what I've been trying to do really is, is, is take a look at some of these things and then, and then sort of what that means to now, because this, and it, because it leads to a different set of questions and different types of conversations, I think actually. And one of those people is David Roberts, uh, also known as Dr. Vox. Um, and he's a one, he's the climate writer specifically for Vox. Uh, and he's, he's been working on that for quite some time. And I think he, I think he's sort of for Grist. He's been writing on the environment issues for quite some time. And he's, and he's a generally, uh, in climate spaces and it, we're, we're referring to really talking about sort of climate, uh, crises, uh, a, a pretty good, a pretty good voice to come from. And the, the article is really called, is called reckoning with climate change will demand ugly trade-offs from environmentalists and everyone else. Um, and, and there's a couple of different things I want to pull from the article. The article is really focusing right now on a ongoing fa fight that's occurring in Massachusetts, a uh, very democratic left-leaning state around how to – around where they should get their energy from, to be honest. Uh, it's, uh, they're in a rel relatively similar position, actually, as, as we are here in Ontario. Um, we have a, we're, we're blessed with a little more hydropower than they are, but – but that is, but in, from a standpoint of sort of okay, we're they have a certain amount of nuclear power, they have they have natural gas, they're phasing out coal, they, they they're phasing out coal if not already entirely phased out, and and so the question is how will they get to the next amount of power? How will they get power that they can use? And it's and it's causing it's causing a bit of a stir, um, and from a standpoint of there's a lot of environmentalists uh, who are fighting things that sort of, if you are understanding the climate crisis as a, as a true crisis, that seem counterintuitive. And that's what the whole article is basically about. And, the, and the, so there's three points I want to pull out of it. And the first one is the distinction that, that, that he makes and has he made a couple of years ago, actually, uh, between climate hawks as a term and environmentalists. And because the, the what, he, what he comes out down to is he sort of sees this term climate hawks as a term for people who who are taking climate change as a crisis. And he, he makes an excellent point that these people are not necessarily environmentalists. You mm -hmm. know, there are many people out there who are conservatives who wouldn't necessarily care about a lot of the other issues that are normally looped in with environmentalism, um, but deeply, deeply care about, about climate change specifically. And, and so he felt like there needed to be a term for that set of people. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and what's useful about having that term for that set of people, climate hawks, is it then also allows you to break it up between climate hawks and, and actually what environmentalists Environmentalists think, mm -hmm. and and how being a climate hawk in it is not necessarily the same thing as an environmentalist. And so there's there can be environmentalists for fighting. So an example of this is that in Massachusetts and in Ontario, uh, a strong set of environmentalists would come out against nuclear power, uh, and are <laughs> in Massachusetts they're closing down one of the nuclear power plants. And as from a climate perspective, it's somewhat difficult to make that case. Uh, and you know when you saw what happened um, after Fukushima, with uh, how quickly Germany is looking to phase out phase out its nuclear power, nuclear power as well, they were at one point replacing that nuclear power with coal, which from a climate perspective is the worst, right? Like, it's like here is here is a very very energy and carbon intensive form of energy, and versus none, um, and that's an issue. And so the point isn't to say that this is not a that that being that you, everyone should be pro nuclear power. Um, the point is that it's a reckoning that has to occur for us to truly understand where to move forward on on climate change issues. If you like, if you're really, if you are a, if you are, if the only thing that matters to you is as fast of a reduction of climate as possible, then. Uh, or of GHG emissions within our climate as possible, then down with climate. Yeah, exactly. Down with climate. Just generally, the whole climate, the political climate, <laughs> the, the atmosphere, everything, everything. Cold climate. It's all the worst. Um, then, then you're then you're really facing yourself. You're, you're getting yourself into a into a into a difficult battle, and and so that's the first one. Is this different? Is this difference between sort of climate hawks and environmentalists, and then climate hawks and everyone? So that's the other thing. Is like you know, if you're a climate hawk who is a who is also in who is a business uh, is more into you know big business, then they're going to have to accept that if that they're going to have similar different, but similar but uh, similar hypo, similar hypo, hypocritical positions potentially, but for different reasons. Hypocrisies. Hypocrisies. Um, in that you know they may have they'll be stuck with a question of okay, will you accept greater regulation to to reduce climate? 
And if not, then you're sort of fighting against, then, then you're right. accepting Then you're that. more business than you are climate are. Well, exactly. Yeah. Uh, or at least that, that then you're, you have to accept that that is something that you're, that you're not willing to, to solve. Climate change. And, and, and at some point it does bring up the question exactly how seriously are, is anyone taking climate, right. climate change specifically? Right. Which, re, which really, I mean, you know, I've, I've accused myself, I'm sure others have as well, of, of occasionally taking a reductionist view on things. But it's not, it's not because I think the reductionist view is, is the most accurate, but it, I think it's important to at least take a moment to consider any issue from a reductionist point of view to at least like sort of filter that into the rest of your thinking. So it's not, it's not that this should be the way the, you know, the cleanest way to do everything. It's, it's not, but I think it's a useful sort of self analytical tool, right? So the, the reductionist point of view on that would be, um, so I'm, I want to fight climate change as long as it doesn't, doesn't cost me anything. Well, is essentially is essentially the reductionist view of that viewpoint, which is they say, "Hey, I'm really concerned about climate change, but only if you don't have to, if you don't regulate me." Well, exactly. Well, it depends on in, in each one in every single position you have that is also a climate hawk, with as well as you know as well as taking the sort of climate hawk position, which is that all GHG emissions must be happening as quickly as possible and as 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 deeply as possible. Then each one will have these different places where you are forced to ask yourself the question: Is the climate crisis more important than X? Right, and and that is and that's what's being highlighted here is that for environmentalists, there's these set of questions, and uh, you know, like is you know the other thing is that there's a nine there's a there's a massive massive um, uh, transition lines that need to get get put in place in 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 Massachusetts as well to sort of build up the capacity for some of these other options. One idea is just getting a whole bunch of the hydropower from Quebec, and that would require this thing. And that's also being opposed for environmentalists for a different reason. And so- Just a slightly different group of environmentalists. Um, well, actually, it's the same one. It's Sierra Club. Um, <laughs> but, but but even within the Sierra Club, I'm sure there's differing opinions. But the point right. is that- Just to say that like, there's more people who are going to be more focused on the on a sub-issue A and sub-issue B right. within that organization and outside of that organization. And theoretically, we're, we're not we, but they are grouped as quote-unquote environmentalists. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and that's sort of, and that's in that. So like as environmentalists, they'll have this set of questions they have to ask themselves. And as business people who are going to climax, they have a different set of questions, but everything comes down to, we, are we staring the climate crisis as a true crisis? And how much are you willing to give it? How much are you willing to accept less of your thing to get GHG emissions straight up? And, and that question gets more and more, uh, in, it gets louder and louder the closer to the the true sort of point of no return that we come to. Um, I honestly think that the, the, the ultimate version of that question, which, you know, heaven forbid we have to actually answer, is do you accept geoengineering versus runaway climate change? Uh, that's sort of the that's the that's the question that if we don't do anything fast enough, you ultimately end up into the question, which is, you know, ultimately unanswerable in some ways. Uh, but the second point sort of go off what you said right there previously is the difference between and the difficulty between building movements on a no versus building movements on a yes mm -hmm. um, which is that it as environmentalists have spent a very very long time building movements of no uh, you know no you can't like do not no pipelines no nuclear power no uh, toxins in the river no 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 and it's easy to build uh, build um, movements on no. Uh, in fact, you can see that how e much easier it is to build NIMBY NIMBY unit uh, movements, uh, not in my backyard movements, than it is YIMBY movements. Yes, in my backyard movements. Like it's it's you can see it everywhere. You know, it's same ways that you you could see like someone like Trump and someone like Stephen Harper both acted as very effective movement building types because you could be say no to everything they were saying and that lets you be very very broad tent no is very broad tent because everyone who disagrees with something is that yes is very is is is, is much more difficult the movement of yes and building movements on a yes more often than not is yes i think we should do this in this particular way and if you don't agree with me then that's then you're no longer a part of this movement right. and as environmentalists as we see this sort of this mythical massive carbon reduction movement commitment that's going to happen at some point and then the whole world's going to turn on and start doing this which is sort of what every one of these articles is sort of half based on it, if in that reality that environmentalists have to be prepared for the fact that that will not be easy <laughs> that as soon as, like if that, that if that if the world turns around to environmentalists and says yes tell us how to do this suddenly the cracks in the in the movement will will show in a in a very big way because that is what you know because th that is 
what will that that's the very very difficult problem of once you start having private solutions then you start ha- having to add certain nuances and then you start m- making people unhappy because they are part the reason why they are part of the no is not being included in the new yes and and that is very difficult uh and it's it, it's, all, it's it also interestingly is sort of why we're seeing it, it's harder for environmentalists even in canada today to champion themselves around any any particular actions because you don't have things like stephen harper or, or or other pipelines, and you know the trans. The closest we have right now is Trans Mountain, which is which is only which is uh, harder to sort of get to be salient across across Canada. Which, if I can take you on a on a on a brief garden path tour off to the left just for a half hmm. second, uh, that's also why. <laughs> that's essentially also. I mean, you can you can scale that out, and it still works as far as like conservative versus you know left wing versus right wing politics, because all of right wing politics is simply based on saying no to stuff. No to those taxes. No to those immigrants. No to you know. No to changing the power dynamic of white people or males mm-hmm. in the workplace or pay structure. Like it's just saying no to everything. It's you know. It's it's very easy for for grouchy old you know mm-hmm. middle upper class white men to say no to stuff. They love saying no to stuff. No is very very easy, and it's very easy to build a movement on people when you only ask them to say no to something. When you ask a bunch of people say we want agreement on this, let's move forward. Let's let's get to yes on this. That's and then that describes very accurately. I think you're you're splintered left. I think on so many issues, which is why there's so much trouble making uh, progress yeah. and why progress is so slow because it's all based on getting people to yes. Well, it, well, yeah. There's a you know there's a there's an argument to be made that that most conservative thought is this a decrease in nuance and most leftist thought is an increase in nuance, um, and both have, have and, and as much as that can be. And then but the problem is that nuance is is a dividing mm-hmm. factor, right? Like you know if if the way you get to your yes does not work, then then that is that is it. Um, but so that's the second one. And the third one is there are only so many of these articles I can read uh, that end with this sort of concept of this mythical, massive carbon reduction movement right. that exists, that is going to come, that is going to change everything. And when it changes everything, all these things are going to happen. Before I start to ask, who are the people who, like, where in the world and who are the people that you see out there who are actively moving towards this being a reality? Like, it feels, it by the 17th one I've written, it feels as if, we are deluding ourselves in the po- that, that, that this will ever actually happen because I don't see the political in the political leaders and the and the other leaders who are actually taking this as their thing. There's like it remains entirely a part of a platform, but never the head point of a platform. And it seems to me to get the kind of commitment required to actually deal with this, it cannot be the second or third thing you do. It has to be the first thing you do. And it's really difficult to keep reading these articles as if this thing is going to happen without any, without seeing the leaders who are going to do it. You know, like there is no, like Justin Trudeau is not going to be this leader. That's just not possible. And, and neither is like, and there aren't really anyone out, there's not, there are very few people out there who are not seen as environmentalists first, who are really, who are really taking this level of it, uh, of it seriously. You know, there's not a lot of people out there who are taking the climate hawk position, the the position that is, okay, let's figure out how to actually reduce emissions by the most possible amount immediately. like immediately, let's actually make that the number one goal. Like, like no one is creating that sort of house on the hill kind of um, uh, goal to move forward to, and you can see it everywhere. You know, the one of the, the point that sort of gets at the end of this uh, and this, this article, which is sort of how I'll both finish and then transition to setting up our interview, because I think what actually makes sense is to sort of after the music break to go directly into the interview, mm-hmm. um, is that the the amount of which we are sort of weirdly stuck in the concept you can you can see you can see how far away we are from this goal i think when you listen to uh lefty urbanites fight density um and and like like i we i sort of had this on the when we when we had uh Dusha from the Toronto Environmental Alliance on the show a few weeks back there we had this conversation around how how cities, how city action plans work, and how cities end up becoming more green, and how cities start to work, work forward, and and one of the things that was so constantly clear was that we were good at saying we wanted stuff, but really bad at acting like we want stuff, and or actually doing the things we need to get the stuff. Specifically, like massive densification and 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 urban transit, which we clearly and desperately need for a sustainable future, and yet lefties everywhere don't like it. 
You know, like look at look at San Francisco's housing. You know, like the only way to solve that is massive densification, and yet there's just constant fights. You know, it's one of the most left wing cities in the world, and 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 you know, at least from a standpoint of uh, of, of of how it sort of perceives itself and how it acts in, in many other ways. But in some, but when it comes down to sort of, can I build a a large a house that has ten people instead of just three beside you? The answer suddenly becomes no again, and. There and that is one that we have to break through very quickly, uh, or else we're really not we're really not looking good on the whole climate hawk perspective. Um, and so, for a perspective on how one can actually make a city greener, uh, and 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 how one can actually sort of champion environmental issues within the city, uh, Deirdre was was kind enough to to reach out to Andrea Reimer, who is one of uh, the Vancouver's uh, city councilors, and. And she was instrumental in um, in working uh, hard to actually make the city of, of Vancouver one of the more environmentally uh, progressive cities in the world. Now, it's if as, as everyone knows, Vancouver remains a housing bit of a housing crisis over there. Um, but and which I think is a part of again this larger conversation. But uh, Deirdre was kind enough to talk to her, and so that's what the, that's what we'll be coming back to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for right now. Uh, shall we just throw over to, to Megan in the booth to find out what we're looking to listen to on the music break? Okay, so for our first music break, we've got Tamia. This is officially missing you. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Deirdre, and I'm here with Vancouver City Councilor, uh, Councilor Andrea Reimer. Um, not only has she been a Vancouver City Councillor since 2008, um, she has been a Vancouver Deputy Mayor and is the former, former Executive Director of the Wilderness Committee. Um, so welcome, Andrea. Hi, Deirdre. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being on our show. Um, and so today we're going to be talking about um, Vancouver and how you've been a leader in making Vancouver what has become one of the world's um, greenest cities at this point. Is that true? Yeah, we um, when we started off, the global rankings only did the top 500, and we weren't in those rankings, so we don't really know whether we were like 10,000 or 501 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, like different indexes look at different things, but on the global green index, we're number four, and on the economist intelligence unit, we're number three. So... We feel like we've come a long way, but it, it's been a lot of hard work, but good community-wide work. So I think um, generally really positive feeling around the accomplishments. Amazing. And um, a lot of that has come from Vancouver's Greenest City Initiative, which you are a huge part in leading, right? Yeah, and we established it back in February 2009. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was one of four goals that we set when we ran t- uh, for public office. I think if you're listening from Toronto or another part of the country, um, Vancouver is a bit unusual in two ways. At the municipal level, we run for the whole city, so we represent. We don't represent like a neighborhood or a ward. We represent all of Vancouver. And then related to that, we run with parties because most people couldn't afford on their own to like go knock on 650,000 <laughs> doors and do all the the advertising <laughs> and stuff. So we have political parties. Um, my party is called Vision Vancouver, and our mayor um, and a majority of us won in 2008 for the first time. So as part of that agenda, we were elected in late 2008. We had four big goals, one of which was to be the greenest city in the world by the year 2020. And uh, how how was it starting that initiative? Was it Was it a struggle at all? Yep, it was really, it was 2009, so like a really different time. Mm -hmm. Um, Someone was asking me um, a a while back, like, what was the big change, the aha moment? Like, why did things, why did people start caring about climate change so much? I really think it's the weather, like, it's like, (laughs) that's been our biggest ally is this massive extreme weather impacts, right? It's very hard. It's not a question of if climate change is happening anymore. It's a question of when and how how prepared you are to take action, right? So that's a really different discussion than was happening in 2009 at a kind of meta society level. Um, Consider that Stephen Harper had just taken <laughs> over the prime ministership here in, um, in British Columbia. 
we had a premier who, who brought in the carbon tax, so had some positive movement on climate, but he was just leaving office and a new person was taking over who had no interest in acting on these issues, was trying to open up um, liquefied natural gas and yeah. other things. So um, we were definitely at the leading edge at that point. I think um, my, my experience was I would stand at podiums trying to, or I mean, metaphorical podiums, real and metaphorical podiums, mm -hmm. trying to catalyze people. I'd be trying to get them involved in this idea of being in the greenest city. And back in 2009, it was like, why would, any, why would we want to be the best at anything? And then the Olympics happened in 2010, and I think that had a huge impact on the psyche of the city. So suddenly the idea of being the best was actually kind of interesting, and why not on green? So I saw this shift in a year from, why would we even try to do this, to, well, okay, if we were going to do this, like, what would we need to do to do it? And then by 20, sort of 13, 14, the conversation very much shifted to why aren't we the greenest yet? But that's kind of amazing, that's right? Cool. In five yeah. years to go from why would we even try this to <laughs> why aren't we there yet is an incredible, I, I found it very inspiring to see how much the business community, labor, different um, cultural communities, different faith communities, different geographic communities um, have invested in this idea, like the identity that they associate Vancouver with now is as this very yeah. green, very clean city. Yeah. Um, and what are, um, where does Vancouver stand now, um, according to your targets and uh, So goals? we have s 10 areas, environmental mm -hmm. areas. It's not just about climate or just transportation or buildings. We also have um, goals around green jobs. We're at 49% in green mm -hmm. jobs. Um, we have goals around clean water, clean air, access to nature. So it's quite a comprehensive plan. In the 10 areas, we have 17 targets. And of the 17, we are on track to meet all but one of them by 2020. Um, the one that will be a bit later, it'll be 2023 on the current projection, um, relates to overall greenhouse gas emissions. But we are already the lowest greenhouse gas emission per capita in North <laughs> nice. America. And when we reach that, we'll be one of the lowest in the world. So it's, it's not... Um, you know, I would like to have met them all by 2020, but if this one is not going to be met till 2023, I still feel like it's been a very amazing effort and cool. substantial. And other cities, I mean, the other thing that's been really, you know, it's watching the public go from why would we bother to why aren't we there yet? Mm -hmm. Watching the world sort of turn its eyes towards Vancouver because because Stephen Harper was prime minister during most of this time, the global community is like, how is the city in this country that's so bad on these issues <laughs> rocketing up from, you know, kind of the middle of the pack to one of the best cities in the world? Um, so that really drew a lot of global attention to what we were doing. I speak to, we've spoken to now well over 2,500 cities around the world who are looking or who have adopted similar plans around. So you're wondering, like, so yeah. this race, the goalposts are constantly moving, right? Because other cities are are making um, greater strides. To me, that was always the name of the game. It wasn't yeah. to win the race, it was to have a race to the top on climate and <laughs> other environmental policy. It's just as important. Yeah, um, absolutely. So what does the world think of Vancouver now? Um, we definitely are, <laughs> I mean, we, we sit in a very, um, a group of cities that is seen globally as not just leaders on outcome, like getting to these incredible things, but leaders on innovation, leaders mm -hmm. on risk-taking, leaders on community collaboration. In fact, when we talk um, to people around the world, the thing that we're most kind of admired for is how we've been able to get together as a community behind these goals. So it's not about the government doing something to people, it's about people and the government working together to do, you know, in the case of the government, there's things as a city we can do, like zoning or um, investing in different transportation infrastructure. The public also needs to be a partner in that, right? Mm -hmm. Where does the infrastructure go? How much will it cost? How will they access it? Like these are all good and important questions. And there's some accountability there. Once that's all happened, are they gonna use it? And yes, it turns out they are using it. More than half of our residents now walk or bike or take transit when they're commuting, which is was our goal. Yeah. Um, one thing, though, I should say, being the greenest city in the world doesn't make you sustainable. So, because there is no, it's not like 
the greenest city was sustainable, mm -hmm. um, we all still have a long way to go. So as part of the greenest city, we've written these plans that go out past 2020 that look at true sustainability. So we're just working on a zero waste strategy. We have a 100% renewable strategy. So figuring out after we get to 2020, how do we actually get the, to the, the real prize, which is living in a way that you only need one planet to make cities yeah. like Vancouver work. And what does a sustainable city look like? <laughs> <laughs> you know what's so incredible? A sustainable city actually looks like the kind of city anyone would want to live in, regardless mm -hmm. <laughs> of their, their interest in green or climate or water or any of these things. It's cleaner. It's more affordable. There's way more options available to people on how to get around, mm -hmm. where to live, how close or far their food is from that. I mean, all of these things. The air is cleaner. The, the noise level is lower. The um, air, the water, the soil is all healthier. So these are all aspirations yeah. of every society, whether or not <laughs> they've bought into the green. So it's, it's very cool to see that when people walk around Vancouver in this green city, when they come from somewhere away, they're like, wow, this, this is the city I want to <laughs> live in, whether or not I care about, I mean, most people now care about climate, but whether or not that's an issue that that motivates or, pa or makes them mm -hmm. passionate, yeah. um, they can get very passionate about the idea of better health, cheaper living, um, more options available to them, and more <laughs> more ability to connect with community in a local way. Yeah, um, and I know you have um, quite, quite a fair bit of social justice and um, equality um, work in your background. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that plays a huge, or not a huge, a big role in, in how you go about about things, about your work? Yeah, it definitely informs like how I approach my work. Mm -hmm. um, I think coming from communities that have traditionally been not had voices in decision making or not had voices even in things that impact their lives, like you know, I've been evicted 11 times in a <laughs> row um, because I'm not, I don't own property. None of those times was it, I guess, quote unquote, my fault. Like I pay rent every month, I pay it on time, but um, landlords want to sell my house and, and make more money, right? So um, I, I'm not able to economically fight back against that. So I just end up having to move. And I'm quite fortunate compared to many people in Vancouver. Um, who have to move more often or who have less financial means than I do. I think that that kind of experience really, I mean, it's one example I could go on. I lived on the streets for a number of years, and as a woman, I think you generally get used to a, a set of factors about yeah. how your voice works in public space or, or even private space. Um, yeah, I think it definitely makes you a lot more sensitive to you know, who's in the room, but who's not in the room, right? Mm -hmm. And how do we make sure that those voices are heard in this room, even if there's barriers to them participating, but shift work or language barriers or confidence barriers or any, you know, they're just not comfortable in a highly verbal environment, right? Yeah. Um, how do we make it possible? And then how do we really hear people? And equity has to be such a key, right? Like we can't, uh, you can't hand everyone, in my opinion, like a $20 voucher and tell them to go make their transportation more sustainable, right? For some people, they have more than enough means and education and opportunity to access that. Sorry, when I mean education, I mean the, the information they need to mm -hmm. make a good choice around that. For other people, they don't... They, that $20 is, well, it's desperately needed food money um, yeah. or rent money or dental emergency money or something, um, but it's not going to support them in having the options and the information they need to be able to make a different transportation choice. So when we build the plan, really thinking about um, the lived experience and realities for people. Yeah. yeah. And you were talking about um, resilience and, um, and how it relates to well, Vancouver's really resilience in the economy and how it relates to the creation of green jobs. Um, and that's kind of part of that um, um, equity plan. Um, so how do you think the social side is tied to the economic side oh, in the green movement? Yes, that is a good question. And one that I think we don't ask ourselves often okay, enough <laughs> and think about often <laughs> enough. It's so impossible to ask people to make choices around green when they don't feel like they have choices mm -hmm. um, economically. 
and also socially, right? So if there's no, um, if your social connections in a community are so fragile and brittle that that you don't feel a sense of confidence around change, around risk taking, around like yeah. even just conversations at the community level with people who don't look like you, who aren't the same age as you, who might be in different, um, radically different professions, who might be introverted when you're extroverted or whatever. How are you ever going to have a conversation about changing the fundamental nature of your transportation and energy system if you can't have a conversation about how someone's day was, mm. who's your neighbor across the street, right? So. Yeah. And those social connections tend to be determined by economic circumstances and your perception of economic security. And I, I'm using the word perception very um, deliberately, that people's uh, economic security is often way better than they think it is or way worse, which is interesting, right? Like mm -hmm. It's hard for us to, uh, because the social has so much impact on it. If you have a strong social network, you often perceive your economic security as much better than it than it is in your own bank account or your own economic sphere because you feel like you're protected by these connections and you are in, in the world. Conversely, if you are single, you live in a condo, you drive into a parkade and take yeah. an elevator up and go in your house and work <laughs> in a cubicle, you can make a lot of money and still feel quite fragile because you just don't have any of those those things that make those of us who might be lower income yeah. but have more connections feel protected by. Yeah. Sorry, that's a, that's I could a go on and on. Big conversation. Yeah, um, but it's it's kind of crazy. But a community garden, for example, yeah. is one of the few places where people from different economic, different mm -hmm. age, different genders, different ethnic backgrounds come together. Right? Yeah. yeah it, but it's so cool to see that you can build the social and economic future of a community on something so basic yeah. but so critical. My roommate just actually got a, a grant, uh, one of your community grants for. Uh, a beekeeping initiative in our community oh. garden, which is um, pretty cool. Um, but and since we, sorry, go ahead. But it's a good example, right? Yeah. A rel um, I'm guessing it's a relatively small grant, but mm -hmm. it will have a big impact on the social connections in the community, but also there's some economic security in terms of, um, well, I doubt one beehive is going to create economic yeah. security <laughs> for a community, but it does give a little bit more access to some nutrition that people might not otherwise have. The hives for humanity here, that's basically how they started, was a community mm. hive and then that's thinking, cool. oh, wait, maybe there's a big economic opportunity here and <laughs> kind of building out from that. So you just don't, this is this risk taking, right? Like that doesn't happen when you're feeling socially or economically fragile. Yeah. The last thing um, before we run out of time sure. I wanted to talk about was uh, whether you had any advice for other cities who want to follow suit, like what to do, what not to do. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, lots. And then also knowing that you know your community better than I do, right? Wherever you are, um, that you're going to have more information. I would say don't underestimate your community. Like, we all, this is my point about the weather, <laughs> we're all experiencing the same weather and yeah. seeing the same news on TV or social media or wherever, right? Um, people get very frustrated when they see a problem so big that it can actually fundamentally re-engineer the weather and therefore our economies and therefore our social connections and our environment and our response is maybe you should turn off your lights or yeah. like change your light bulbs to these other things, right? They intuitively or thoughtfully can deduce <laughs> that the solution you're providing is way smaller than the problem that you're mm -hmm. trying to solve, right? Um, so don't underestimate them. Um, know that there are 10% of people who will always hate what you're doing, 10% of people who will always love what you're doing, and that it's really the 80% in the middle that you're, mm. you're trying to engage in a policy discussion. Um, it's not to say you ignore those 10 and 10, but know that the, that's who those people are, right? Yeah. So don't, don't build policy to suit one or the other because it's not an accurate view of the the middle or the the kind of center of gravity in your community. Um, I do think there's a requirement to lead when you're a leader. <laughs> I know that sounds... I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that there's been a trend in politics towards following polls and following public opinion. Mm -hmm. It's a delicate balance, like you're there to represent the community, so you should have some idea of how they're feeling about things, but you're also there to support the community in meeting big problems, and that may take courage and leadership on big solutions. 
the other thing, like last piece of advice, <laughs> it takes as much effort to fight for a 100% renewable energy plan as it does to fight for a bike lane. So go big. <laughs> like don't, nice. like if you're going to break some ice, like get out a big icebreaker and, and make it happen, right? And make lots of room. And that community that you're not going to underestimate will come into that space and you'll be amazed at what happens. That's awesome. That was great. Um, just kind of a light note because I saw this in the news today and you seem to have a minute. Um, I don't know if you heard, but the, the group of people that started the doomsday clock, okay, they, I uh, didn't. they just moved it forward 30 seconds closer to doomsday. Um, and I think we had two minutes left. Um, I How thought do you this feel was a lighter that? note. <laughs> <laughs> I just, um, I guess, I guess it's not a lighter note, but, um, but do you think that we still have time to oh, make the world better? Ab- absolutely. There's this great <laughs> quote from Martin Luther, not, not Martin Luther King Jr., but the original Martin Luther he was named after, um, that even, what it, even if, I knew it would fail, I would still plant my apple tree. Like this beautiful idea that, like nobody has a kid thinking, mm-hmm. well, they're gonna be prime minister, absolutely. Like, you, you know, like you, you engage in endeavors all the time in life that you have no idea what the outcome is gonna be, but you do it because you share the values with the people you're doing it with, because you have principles and following that course upholds your principles, right? Like there's tons of reasons we do stuff, despite evidence that maybe it's going to be challenging and maybe it's not going to work. What's the other alternative? Like, Mm -hmm. I I just think it it is the nature of being human and what makes us, um, what I love most about life is that we strive and the very time we should be striving the hardest is when the doomsday clock is moving 30 seconds over, right? That's a wonderful note to end on. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me on. All right. So uh, we're back now live in the studio. Thank you so much uh, to Andrea Reimer, a counselor from BC, for her time, and as well uh, to Deirdre Liwanada for uh, her time providing us with that interview from BC. We have volunteers yeah. all over a network, a global network of volunteers. Exactly. We, we not only are we not only do do the radio stations cover us coast to coast. We also have uh, we have we have someone out in BC. Now we just need someone out in the East Coast. Right. We'll get working, working on, on that. that. Yep. 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 <laughs> uh, so uh, you are listening to the Green Majority. In case you're tuning in late uh, here today, uh, we are uh, currently live on CIUT 89.5 FM or. Currently not, but currently, as you're listening to it, not live uh, on uh, one of our very appreciated community radio partners all the way across the country in the United States now as well, uh, or internationally anywhere on the planet or potentially in the universe, future, past, and present uh, technology, uh, assuming, uh, uh, on our podcast, which you can find at greenmajority.ca. We have one more section coming up. Don't go anywhere, but we're going to go now to Megan for a, a short music break, our final one of the show, and we'll be back to wrap up with some more news. Okay, so for our second music break, we have Cold Specs. This is Send Your... This February child was all right, we are back. I'm your host, Aaron Kaster. Stefan Hostetter is also here in the studio. We're into the final section here on The Green Majority at CIUT. 89.5, our community partners, or our cool podcast, which occasionally uh, has extra notes. Yeah. Uh, recently, it's just been a lot of announcements. Uh, but those announcements will, once the thing that the announcements are about takes place, hopefully return to being additional content is <laughs> one of my heart's desires. Yes, exactly. Uh, boy, I remember we had a bunch of really fun bonus shows. Mm, I can't yeah. wait to start doing that yeah, again. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that'll be a cool thing, but that's not today. That won't happen today. Today, we're going to talk uh, just for a couple of minutes about two, probably just two topics. Uh, I do want to mention that uh, insurance news item uh, that I did tease earlier, but there was uh, something else that jumped out at me actually just w- during the show uh, and that I sort of, I saw it last night and that I'd sort of forgotten about it and then, and then I was reminded about it again just as we were getting going here, which was an interesting uh, thing and I think there's a, I'm going to ask here to help Stefan because there's, I think there's a direct c- correlation with the opening section with that opening article about uh, sort of intellectual honesty is, I guess, a way of, of looking at it on sort of environment issues. So uh, Rich Notley, the premier, of, uh, the ND, uh, NDP premier in Alberta, is currently uh, having a, I would say, rather amusing public fight <laughs> uh, with, I think, is it Ken Horwath? Uh, 
I, I'm, I don't know why I'm thinking it's Ken. <laughs> uh, anyway, the, the, uh, her uh, colleague, her, her compatriot in uh, BC over the Trans Mountain Pipeline, of course, Richard Notley had, um, has had a difficult time, uh, both maintaining her NDP brand and also uh, not being skinned alive by the residents of Alberta. Mm. Um, and that has put her into a very interesting position. And I remember when we t were looking at that election and, and then when she won, we had a lot of questions about what was this going to look like? What does, you know, the supposed hippie left party uh, or the at a bare minimum, the sort of like, you know, uh, uh, populist light uh, NDP, mm. um, Gonna gonna look like in one of the most conservative provinces in the country, and and I we're we're seeing some of that play out now. She's um, and I think there's a there's a bunch to say about. It, so I'm just gonna say a couple bits more about what actually happened. But what I really want to talk about is the dynamics of the conversation that's been taking place between those two leaders, the dynamic with the federal government, and how that might correlate. So I'll throw to you for that in a second. But basically, what happened was the Trans Mountain Pipeline is going ahead. Of course, Kinder Morgan is an existing pipeline. They want a triple capacity. Um, this was something that Trudeau promised would be built uh, because climate change. Uh, we're going to get to how that squares in a second. Um, but uh, essentially, the the also new uh, government in uh, BC, the new uh, coalition government, is that the technically the right word in this case? I believe, yeah, they're, they're, okay. they're, they're at least agreeing to work together. Yeah, yeah so uh, is is creating a problem because, of course, the the residents of BC quite rightly don't want triple capacity of of the highly even worse than uh, regular oil, the the heavily heavy bitumen um, flowing through, and so they're conducting. Uh, reviews of catastrophic uh, catastrophic spills and whatnot um, and it's very amusing I mean some of the language is very amusing just because it's you don't usually get to see such an obvious like personal fight I mean you know politics is full of sort of grandstanding and the I can't believe that my colleague would but it's all theater right like it's <laughs> It's all sort of stage presence. This really feels like people have hurt feelings. And I think what that has to do with is around the fact that, uh, as as we said, um, if Notley doesn't get uh, a pipeline built, she will lose power. That is basically guaranteed. Um, and that just has to do with the politics in Alberta. Um, at the same time, if the coalition government partially, you know, between uh, it's the NDP and the Greens, uh, prevent uh fail to prevent the pipeline they will almost certainly one of them will lose power if not both of them back to the liberals or you know heaven forbid the conservatives so well which we talked in, about in on a previous show is basically the same thing yeah well, um, BC don't really exist. but so and i think part of that before we before i throw to you that my my last sort of comment on that is that i think part of that was that nobody i don't think was expecting the liberals to lose power in bc and i uh, i think it's a fair guess i have no inside knowledge this is pure conjecture but i have a fairly strong personal opinion based on nothing but my own opinion uh that there probably was already a silent agreement to sort of make a show of supporting people's concerns about the environment but then coming down with some sort of, well, we studied it and it turns out this is safe and this is for the best of Canada. So I think like there, the, what happened here was that nobody was expecting this there to be any any force behind this desire, political force behind this, this, this public desire to stop the pipeline and that this has sort of already been quietly agreed to. Uh, but then the change in power happened and it looks like they are actually going to stand up to her. Uh, the the uh, Notley uh, the, uh, that BC is going to stand up to Alberta on this issue um, and it's put Trudeau in an awkward spot it's put uh, NDP leader Yasmeet Singh in an awkward spot because he's also very publicly leader of the federal NDP party is also very publicly anti-trans mountain pipeline uh, so I mean this is turning into a real mess a real political mess for a number of parties um, and it's it's boy it's almost as interesting as American politics for once <laughs> Yeah, the so it's it's John Horgan is the name of the Horgan. I don't know. Horwath John is a different Horgan. politician. Yes, yeah, so uh, you had a, a, diff, a different NDP politician. Uh -huh. um, but um, but yeah, so the but what is interesting here is that is is a perfect example actually of the difficulty of coalition building once you're in power. You know, this is this is an example of two BC governments or two NDP governments in in Alberta and BC who who obsessively like let alone they're not they're not just sort of like loosely both called environmentalists you know it's not like they're sort of hold this loosely held term they are both specifically meant to um meant to work directly on this issue right that's the that's the entire thing here like 
it is not it, it's not that it's not like they're meant to work together because they're part of the same party that's that's how these parties work in some ways right I'm sorry let me just because it's it's funny and relevant let me stick in there's the one of the one of the couple of quotes here that I thought was very good so just to emphasize the the difference so uh, this is actually just I'm just going to read from the the first paragraph of one of the articles here we'll find the article on the website if you want to check it but uh, the beginning of the article just says two weeks ago Notley said federal NDP uh, leader Yasmeet Singh's anti-trans mountain stance is quote irrelevant and defended that uh, Tuesday in Ottawa saying Singh should work on fighting future battles not ones that have already been decided um, so there, there this isn't a quiet um, disagreement right. uh, the gloves are off yeah and and yeah and this is like and this is interesting right this shows the difficulty that that it can occur and this is the type of thing that will become incredibly common um, if if there is a level of which you know, environmentalists do, or people who sort of have these issues get, get more in power. You know, the number of times that that it'll be difficult to maintain that sort of that sort of that sort of idea that we're all that we all do agree um, is is going to become more and more and more difficult the closer and closer you get to these to to that to, to power because then you because then you can't you know it's the if you're both the NDP government in like. Can you imagine if this also had then if you also add Jagmeet Singh existing in uh, you know existing in, in in actually power in Justin Trudeau's seat, then you're basically having you know three NDP governments all infighting with each other uh, on a national stage, and it's you know while there's there's you know there's a long history of of the of provincial parties not being directly aligned with government parties, especially in things like you know like especially in places where like BC the the Conservative Party almost doesn't exist, and so the Liberals have almost taken up that mantle, so they're more similar, and then of course the you know. Of course, it, the the Conservative Party and the NDP Party in in Alberta is dramatically more right wing than the NDP Party in other places. Like these sort of types of things, we we understand that there's these differences, right. but unquestionably, this is an example of that kind of fight. Um, yeah. And and we'll see what happens. Um, I think given and also also interestingly was that like Trudeau was asked about this at a town hall. He's currently doing his town hall tour and has been quite ferociously heckled through the middle of the country, as you might expect yeah. but still um and 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 he was you know quoted as saying on an edmonton uh, radio program quite unequivocally that this project has been decided it's in canada's national interest it's part of our it's part of our plan and it will go through so didn't seem to be any room for wiggling there uh but then also seemed to let it slip elsewhere in i believe that interview possibly a different one uh but on the same topic and in the same time period uh that he was not terribly enthused about getting in the middle of the fight and so I mean, you could you could sort of discern that a number of ways, but I'm assuming that means like I'll step in if I have to, but I really don't want to get involved. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It was like I want. Well, yeah. Because like, how do you? This is the problem, right? This is the problem here when when you've already accepted a bunch of trade offs for an agreement that you've gone for, the people are going to hang you out to dry on on issues of this particular nature. You know, you you you're you're really in a tight bind. Oh man, so uh, I really wish we had more time to talk about that. But so I was going to ask you to talk about it, Stefan. Maybe just for yourself, think you know, with that in mind of what we were saying uh, before, uh, if you know, getting Alberta to accept climate change policies is the price of that is a pipeline expansion. Uh, you know, is the is the math here? I don't know. I mean, just like try and, uh, and I'm not even trying to push a conclusion on you, but I think it's worth thinking that through about political realities. And then we did promise, so I'll just have to give you the title because we got to go. Uh, we'll post the article so you can read it yourself. But uh, Lloyd's of London, which is the oldest insurance company in the world and one of the biggest, will stop offering coal insurance as of April 1st of this year. That is big news. You can read the article for yourself on the Green Majority website uh, as well as all the other links to all the other topics. Uh, aside from that, Stefan, thank you very much for your time. Deirdre and, uh, and our guest from BC, thank you for theirs. Megan, of course, our tech. And you, the listener, for listening in on The Green Majority this week. We will be back next week, as usual, and into the future. Take care. Thank you. Take care.